Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. So there's Paul in Athens, and he meets with a little bit of success, not a lot, but there's a few people that believe. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things, that's one of the things that we, I think, uh, just as an aside, we, we need to stop and consider, when we preach, proportionally, how many people are going to believe? Not a lot. Not a lot. And why is that? Not many wise, not many noble, not many are calling, right? Broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Many find it. Few are the ones that find the narrow gate. And we need to understand, we, need, we just get that under our, our, our hats. And, you know, one of the, one of the great uh, difficult, I remember listening to uh, Kent Hughes. I don't know if you know Kent Hughes. He's pastor of Wheaton Church there in, in uh, Chicago, Illinois, up in Wheaton, Illinois, um, not too far from uh, Heibel's church. But uh, I think it's College Park Church he's the pastor of. And he came here and he talked about, you know, liberation from the success cycle. And he said one of the hardest times of his ministry is he, he got sucked into this, you know, I, my ministry's not a success because people aren't believing or, or, you know, it's not people aren't growing like I want them to. And, and he, he says he, he really come to the dark days of his ministry when he really believed that God wasn't good because his ministry was not flourishing. And, he, and, and you really need to break yourself out of that. No, he did. Yeah. Yeah, Steve. Oh, Steve. Everybody's confused. Um. But but he said he said it was it was hard. he he almost gave up the ministry. He said because it was so difficult for him he he'd get up and he he just look at his church and he just say nobody nothing's happening. And we really need to understand that God builds His church, not us. What has God called me to be? Faithful. Leave the results up to Him. He would, he he wrote a book on it actually. I've got the book at home. Um, he felt he felt he was he was extremely depressed because he felt his church wasn't growing like it should. People weren't being come to the Lord like they should. There wasn't enough discipleship, and it was all his fault because he should do this or he should do that. And he was taking upon himself the burden of making the church be what only God can make the church be. We need to be faithful. God builds the church. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's a good friend of David Walls, remember? Dr. Walls is a really good friend. Kent Hughes. But you're still human. You know, and, you know, there's part of me, you know, I'll be honest sometimes, there's part of me that says, you know, I only got, what, 11 people for class? Yeah, I should have more than that. I've seen smaller. Yeah, I've seen smaller too. And, you know, I've had to, I've had to really, it's not me. It's God. It's God's class. It's God's church. It's God's responsibility to make things happen. And I need to be sure that I'm faithful, right, and doing my part. But then, it's it's up to God to make something happen. I can't. I can't do that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No, you'd be surprised. I'm serious. Um, we had uh, Wednesday night Bible studies in the church many years ago, and I I've been teaching Bible now for I don't know 15, 20 years. I can't. I've lost track. Um, and my classes have always been fairly small. But you teach the latest pop psychology fad thing, and you'd fill them up. I particularly remember I was teaching through the Book of Romans. I had six people in my class, and some guy was teaching birth order, and and he had a class filled up, and people on a waiting list. Mm. Birth order. The trauma of being the second out of three kids or some silly thing like that. It's like, first of all, why are you teaching that in a church? That doesn't make any sense to me. But he had a... He had a a waiting list and what it, what occurred to me was well you know if you give a you know a little kid the choice between asparagus and ice cream what's he going to eat ice cream yeah um that's the, you got to understand that's the way it is how many people in your church really want to study the word of god really want to study it you got a handful now you you know you have programs and music you know, we we in this church. You know, we we'd have some guy come in and do a do a musical, you know, or do a concert. You know, we'd pack it out and have waiting list. You get somebody to come in to preach the word of God, and you know, you might have half the congregation show up. Oh, have a prayer meeting. That they'll run the other way. Seriously, have a prayer meeting. Look at how many people have prayer meetings. You have prayer meeting, right? Compared to Sunday morning, how many people show up at prayer meeting? Depends because a lot of our people are involved in Awana and at the same time as Awana. Okay, well, if you add them all up. No, probably on an average, when we don't have Awana, we probably run about 75. And what about church? Uh, about 250. There you go. And that's the way it is in all churches. I mean, it's if you have a prayer meeting, you know, if you have 1x in prayer meeting, you'll have 5 to 10x in your church. All right, and and that's just the way it is. We need to we need to realize as believers, we, we really need to to come to understanding. It is not our responsibility to grow the church. It's not our responsibility to talk somebody into the kingdom, to make them a Christian. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful to the Word of God, to what He has called us to do, and let God worry about the results. Because if you start worrying about the results, you're going to become discouraged and disheartened because you're human. That's the Holy Spirit. And you know what? There's not a lot of them that show up. And, you know, you, you stop and think about this. Well, Billy Graham, look at him. You know, he's got 5,000 people go for it. Yeah, and probably five of them are saved. Seriously, I'm not making that up. They've done studies on this, and they've done studies on Louis Palau, who did evangelism constantly. You know, down in, I think it was Venezuela, he had a whole bunch of people come forward and they followed up and they only had found one person out of that entire group that was in a church a year later. Mm. You know, and by the way, results, are, are results a, a good barometer of the effectiveness of a ministry? No, no. no because the Mormon church is the, is the fastest growing church in America. And don't tell me they're growing for the right reasons. They're not. They deny the deity of Christ, for one thing. So, don't fall into that trap. Paul, he was a faithful minister. 
And wherever he went, there was a few that believed. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Um, so Paul was in Athens for a little while. He reasoned in the synagogue, so he was there for more than a week. We don't know how long he was there. But um, after that, he went to Corinth. Why did he go to Corinth? Huh? He followed the road. Guess what? The, guess where the next destination was? Corinth. He came from the north. So the only way to go now is you got to go out to the ocean, or you follow the road down to Corinth. What do you know about Corinth? It was the San Francisco of that day. Yeah. It was yeah. Um, they have they even coined a word Corinthianize. Corinthianize means to act like a Corinthian. Um, Corinth. What's that? Corinth had every vice known to mankind. All right. Um, Corinth was on the, if you look at a map, you have a big hunk of Greece down below, and then you've got Athens area here, and there's a little neck of land. That's where Corinth was. It was situated on that. There was a sister city, I think Sincrea, which was on the other side of the Isthmus. Um, but they had a, a canal that they had cut through there to keep the boats from having to go all the way around Corinth. They would drag them across the land. They actually had an industry there. They'd put the boats up on rollers and actually drag them across the land and dump them in the sea on the other side to, to you know, cut the several hundred miles out from going around the end of, of Greece there. And so it was a commercial city. It was highly commercial. Um, every possible vice known to humanity was there. Idolatry was rampant. All right. Um, not far from there was the Temple of Delphi, where the Oracle of Delphi was, which was the center of Greek paganism and false religion. Um, it was it was a rough place. Um, it was it was a city known for its wickedness and vice and unrestrained immorality. Delphi. Huh? Delphi. D e l p h i. Yeah. Vice. Delphi. Yeah. Yeah. But um. So he goes down there to Corinth, and uh, there he finds a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. This happened around A.D. 50, thereabouts. A.D. 50. Paul or Claudius evicted the Jews from Rome. And them being Jews, they had to leave, so they made their way over to Corinth, probably using a, a ship that made their way over. And it came to them. So because he was the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, by occupation, they were tent makers. What was a tent maker? What did he do? What did Paul do? He made tents. Now, how do you make tents in those days? There weren't canvas. Yeah, animal skins, right? So, how many animal skins does it take to make a tent? Depends on how big the tent is, right? But what what did you have to do to make a tent with animal skins? You had to kill it, pan it, and dry it out, sew it together. Well, assumed you got the skins. What did you have to do now? You had to cut them and piece them together. By the way, that's what Paul means in First Timothy, where he says, "Cut it straight." Yeah. 
Show yourself approved on the God of workman that needs not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing there means to cut straight. And what he's talking about there is how as a tent maker, what did he have to do to make all the skins fit? He had to cut them in such a way that they fit together. And what Paul is saying is that you need to study the Bible so that all of the pieces fit together. That's something that we don't like doing nowadays, right? We like certain verses and punt the rest. You know, and that's one of the problems that one of the challenges you have as a student of Scripture is where whatever doctrine, whatever issue it is you're studying, all the verses have to fit. If you want to really get in on the whosoever will may come, that's great. But what do you do about the chosen before the foundation of the world? That's a verse too. You can't ignore it. And if you really want to get high on the God chosen whosoever, you know, before the foundation of the world, then how do you deal with the whosoever will may come? Because that's part of the scripture too. And Paul's saying you got to cut it straight. And he got it from, you know, he's using an illustration out of his occupation as a tent maker. And in those days, in those cities, if you understand how those cities were, you had different sections of the cities that had different trades kinds of people in it. You know, the potters were over here and the tanners were over here and the tent makers were over here and and, and so with Paul being a tent maker, having that as a trade, he went to, um, to work in the tent making section. And who did he run into but Aquila and Priscilla there? Okay. And um, you might say, well, wait a minute. I thought Paul was a Pharisee. How come he's a tent maker? Well, you got to understand how things worked in those days, see. See, being a Pharisee was a good thing, but you didn't put it didn't put food on the table. So even as a Pharisee, you would learn a trade, a different trade, so that you could make a living. So wasn't a Pharisee just a, like a political denomination? Yeah, but they had to live, they had to eat, they had you know, so they learned trades. You know, there are certain now there are certain trades they couldn't do. All right, but they learned trades. Um, Paul was a tent maker by trade. That's what he learned to do to provide for himself. He had a job on the side, and that's where he runs into Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So he's back in the synagogue every Sabbath day. So how long is he here in Corinth? Well, quite a while. Now, how many people know how long he was there? About About three weeks. Year and a half, 18 months. Oh, okay. well, how did you derive that? We'll get there. We want to make this Berean here satisfied. We'll get there. All right. But Paul's here in Corinth. And, and, and again, you got to understand, Corinth is, one of the, Corinth is one of the wickedest cities in the Roman Empire when it comes to morality and things. I mean, it's just anything goes, basically. All right. So what happens? Well, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, what's in Macedonia? What church is in Macedonia? Which which is? Thessalonica and Berea. Okay? And remember, Paul left them in Berea. Okay? So they had come down and they caught up with Paul down in Corinth. Okay? Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, why, 
when Silas and Timothy came, now Paul was reasoning all along, but what happened evidently when Silas and Timothy came? Got a little, he had, he had some companions, some encouragement, got even bolder. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he took his garment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who was one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. This is, this is really one of the major turning points here with Paul's ministry. Prior to this, every town he went into, he started in the synagogue. But finally, he's had enough. He says, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, is that what God wanted him to do? Yeah. Well, yeah, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. All right. For that purpose? Opposition came, period. All right. Um, but God used this occasion to really maybe drive home to Paul, you know, it's time to turn. Now, now you got to understand, too, what is happening in Acts, remember? It's a book of transition. Mm -hmm. And starting early on, you know, you have a lot of Jews, and, and that drops off, and the Gentiles pick up. And if you want to think about it, this is sort of where those lines cross. Maybe that's a bad way to put it. You ever see those lines? You don't have that in the text. Transition, and you don't have wheat, feed, and... Uh... That's an Acts 20. That's an Acts 20. All right. But what you have is, you know, the church started out with a lot of Jews, right? And it started dropping off, right? And now there's a little, and it started out with no Gentiles, and, and it started going up, right? And this is sort of where Paul is here in Acts 18. Maybe that's one way to look at it. He began, he, and this is where he really begins. Now, he's been witnessing the Gentiles all along, right? It's not like he's not been witnessing the Gentiles. But the Gentiles he witnessed to were what kind of Gentile? The God-fearers, right? They were the ones hanging around the synagogues. And they are the ones that were receptive to the gospel. And all the Jews did, we ran to, except for the Bereans, they mocked and just gave them an endless grief. Okay. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. He had a little revival. The head of the synagogue believed. And a lot of the Corinthians believed. What kind of persons were they? Gentiles. He's not a Gentile. Crispus is the ruler of the synagogue believed that with his household and many of the Corinthians, i.e. Gentiles believed, hearing believed, and they were all baptized. All right. So what you have is a revival going on here. And in the Corinthian church, you have Jews and Gentiles, almost in equal numbers, maybe. But you start seeing really this Gentile wave beginning, so to speak, in the church. And the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 
there's your 18 months, all right? You happy? Yeah. All right, just want to make sure. <laughs> highlight that. Yeah. Pardon? Corinth. Now, this is interesting here. What did God tell him? Because I have lots of people in this city. What did God mean by he had a lot of people in that city? He had some believers. No, he's got three believers. He's got their elect but not saved. All right. See, that's why. That's why you. You know, if you're not a Calvinist, it's kind of tough to understand part of the scripture here. You know, God is saying, "Look, Paul, I have a lot of people in this city, and you need to stay here and preach the word. Why? So they can hear. So they can hear it and believe. They're elect, but they haven't believed yet. All right." And God is basically telling Paul, don't worry about it. No one's going to hurt you. No one's going to attack you. I'm with you. And he stayed there for a year and a six months, preaching the word of God. And what was happening? Many were believing. All right. Why? Because God had his people. All right. And God, God knew who they were. Paul didn't. So how did Paul find God's people? They preached he preached and the elect came, you know. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, when did this happen? When did verse 12 happen? A year and a half later. When Gallio became proconsul of Achaia. Now, this is, this is the date we could nail. All right. No, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Who's the proconsul? He's the governor of Achaia. What's Achaia? And what province? What 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 is the cities in Achaia? Corinth and Athens are the big two cities. Think of modern day Greece as the southern part of modern day Greece. That's Achaia. Northern part is Macedonia. That's a province. Okay. Why do you call it Corinth instead of just Corinth? Is that a different area? No. Okay. Corinth is it's pronounced it's pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, but Gallio became the governor of Achaia, and by the way, we know when he became governor. He was governor from July, A.D. fifty-one to July to June A.D. fifty-two as a one-year appointment. So when most likely was Paul hauled up before Gallio? Probably in July of eighteen or AD fifty one. So which tells you when did he show up in Corinth? Probably January AD fifty, somewhere around in there, give or take a little while. So this is one of the dates you could nail, and we know this because we know when Gallio was proconsul there. All right. And why would they have brought him up before Gallio? Think about that. Why Why would they have done that? He didn't know what was going on, right? He's a new guy on the block, new governor. So what are the Jews thinking? Now's the time to strike while the iron's hot. This guy doesn't know what's going on. Let's see if we can get Paul ousted out of here. Why did the Jews want him ousted? You had a thriving church going. You know, it's cutting into their business down at the synagogue. You got a bunch of the Jews believing. That not John Crispus even believed, you know? And they didn't want they don't want to handle that. 
So they're figuring, well, let's get Gallio, let's raise a ruckus here, and let's see if we can get Gallio to expel Paul out of here. And I like the way Paul, Gallio, when Paul's about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names of your own law, look to yourselves, but you don't want to be a judge in such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. They tried to haul Paul into the court. Gallio said, I'm not going to deal with this. There's no crime here. There's no wrongdoing. Get out of here. And he threw him out. He didn't want to deal with him. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So they took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Who's Sosthenes? Yeah, he's the one that... Now, now think about it here. Here's Sosthenes. Who says, let's go get this guy all riled up. We're going to get, we're going to cause a real ruckus here. And they haul Paul in, hoping that Gallio is going to throw Paul out of the city or something else. And what happens? He gets beat. This wasn't work out this way. Because Gallio wasn't going to put up with their silliness. He said, if it's about your law, get out of here. Don't bother me. And he beat Sosthenes. Yeah. Oh, the, Greek. the Greeks. Yeah. In the official MacArthur Study Bible, which you also have a copy of, mm-hmm. it says the Greeks had reasons for being hostile to Sosthenes. They were venting general hostility towards Jews on him, or they may have been angry with his unsuccessful attempt as leader of the Jews at prosecuting the case against Paul. Since he was the ruler of the synagogue, he would have presented the case to Gallio. Later on, however, what happened? He got converted, he got converted to Christ. Because talk about Sosthenes, our brother, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, I think it is. Later on. But this time, it, it, it didn't work out too well for him. All right? Yeah. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren. So Paul stayed there 18 months. So, you know, again, this is all approximate... You understand when it's talking about here, this is a, it doesn't say he stayed 18 months to the day. It's an approximate time. Um, probably he was there maybe a, a little over a year or so before they brought him before the judgment seat. He was there a few months after that, maybe weeks. It doesn't say. But then he took leave of the brother and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken about what's Sincrea? Yeah. Well, if you look at your maps, if you look at your maps, you know, you got Athens coming down, then you got this big thing here like this, sort of. Here's Corinth, and here's Sincrea. So if you're going to go to Syria, you don't sail from Corinth because you don't want to go around this way. You go across here and you sail from Sincrea over to Syria. Sincrea is the other port city. They're on opposite sides of this, like 20, I think it's like 20 miles or something. It's not very far. Isthmus. It's a. It's a. It's a sister city. And uh, yeah. The judgment seat was um, where in, in the Greek cities and that, um, if you had a case against someone, you'd take them down to the judgment seat where your case was adjudicated by the 
the rulers of the city. It's like a trial. Yeah, it's like a trial. It's judgment seat. And, and the governor would come there and you could petition the governor um, for, you know, adjudication and various disputes, basically, is the way it worked. All right. And uh, he drove them away from there because he didn't want to deal with their petty issues. All right. Paul. It doesn't say. It doesn't say what the vow was, but he took a vow. Cut his hair. He had his hair cut off. He got himself, he got a buzz. He got a buzz haircut. Doesn't say why. It just, you know, he did because he had taken a vow. It doesn't fill in, you know, what the vow was. Um, and, and it could have been, you know, he was showing God his gratitude for taking care of him at Sancria. I mean, they took religious vows, and sometimes in those days, with the Jew, part of the vow was you would cut your hair as a symbol of a vow that you've taken. So when people saw you, they would know that you had taken a vow. This is um, Acts 21 and 24. That's a vow. He took, yeah, you, you could take a vow. And what a vow was is that you, it was a period of consecration. It was a, it was a period where, you know, like a fast or something like that that we may do nowadays. You know, saying, you know, for a year I'm not going to watch TV. I take a vow to abstain from television for a year, whatever, you know. Um, and, and you could do that. And part of the culture that time or part of the, the um, practice was you could cut your hair. Now, as a Nazarite, you were not to cut your hair, right? right. He took a Nazarite vow. But Paul had taken a vow and he had cut his hair. And that was a, that was a, a known symbol of taking a vow, okay? And it doesn't fill in what it was. It just says he took a vow. And when they asked him to stay a little, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a little longer with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. He was going to go to Jerusalem for a feast, so he's trying to get there. And of course he sailed from you know, when you sail, you sailed across here. You know, you've got Asia Minor coming down like that. He goes across to Ephesus, then he goes over to Syria. All right, that's where he's going. All right, so he's taking the fastest route back. Um, and when he had landed at Caesarea, which was the port city there in Palestine, he had gone up and greeted the church. He went down to Antioch. And after spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygian order, strengthening all the disciples. All right. So he's still um, now here. What we have here. In Acts 18, you have the end of the second missionary journey. And the beginning of the. Third missionary journey. It doesn't talk about his trip to Jerusalem here. Not not here. All right. Because he'd gone and greeted the church. He went to Antioch. That's his home base, right? And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. What's in Galatia and Phrygia? 
Iconium, Lister, Derby, Antioch, right? Now, a certain Jew named Paulus, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what did Apollos know? He knew about John, right? I mean, he knew a lot, but he didn't know about Christ, and, and it, he knew the, the ministry of John. And what was the ministry of John? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught accurately. Now, what it says, he taught accurately. So he wasn't mistaken. He taught accurately, but he didn't have the full picture yet, right? So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Quill and Priscilla heard them, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he decided to cross to a cave, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those we had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This here is a little statement about the ministry of Apollos. Who was Apollos? Apollos was a mighty person in the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. He was from Alexandria. And who helped him uh, know the way of Christ? Uh, who, who helped him in his development there? Well, Priscilla and... And who were Priscilla and Aquila? They, they weren't disciples of Paul. They were friends of Paul, right? They were, they were from the church in Rome. They were believers. And they were a man and a woman. They were a married couple. And they took Apollos aside and taught him. All right? Now, this is, you know, people who are with the modern, you know, liberation of women in the church. They can preach and be pastors. and Elders want to really hang on this and show, well, look, you know, Priscilla really was uh, a major influence in Apollos. The answer to that is what? She was. She was. But how was that? How was that done? She taught. It was within that family. Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside, and they taught him. He didn't say Priscilla got up and preached in the church or anything like that. But look, you know, there's a, there's a strong place for women and for especially married couples to disciple others. There's nothing, the Bible doesn't prohibit that. It doesn't say the woman has to shut up and never say anything about God or anything. The only restriction is on the public preaching in the church. That's it. That's the only restriction. Other than that, there are very necessary places. And in the case of Apollos here, it was Priscilla and Aquila together who worked with him and, and discipled him. All right? Yeah, he was fervent in spirit. 25, that mean that only He was intense. He was a type A. He was, oh. yeah, he, now of course he had the Holy Spirit, right? Because he was born again. But, but, yeah, but I think, yeah, usually when it says fervent in spirit, it means that there's a sense of urgency. There, 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 there are real, I don't know, type A go-getter type person. Okay, I think it's small as he's fervent in his spirit. Okay, not in the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, but yeah, that's a good question there. Um, well, what do you think they taught him? He he knew what? What did he know before before he ran into Priscilla and Aquila? What did he know? 
He knew the scriptures, but he knew up to what? The ministry of John the Baptist. All right. So let's let's just ask a hypothetical question. Apollos is on his way, and before he meets Priscilla and Aquila, he gets struck by a meteor and he dies. Is he part of the church or part of the Old Testament? He'd be part of the Old Covenant, right? Why? He hadn't heard about Christ, but he believed the message of John. He was redeemed, but he would have been numbered with the Old Testament saints, right? Once he heard the gospel, what did he do? It's implied in these verses. What did he do? He believed, right? And here's the point. If someone was a true disciple of John, they would become a true disciple of Christ. Okay? When they heard the gospel, they would believe. Yes. Apollos went and worked with the church in Corinth. All right. He was a missionary alongside Paul, basically. And he was from Alexandria. What do you know about Alexandria? Is Egypt. What do you know about Alexandria? It was a university city. In fact, what were the three major university cities of that day? Let's see if I can get them right. Rome? No. No. Not Rome? Alexandria, Egypt was one. No. Antioch was the second one. And I forget what the third one was. No. These were major university cities, you know, centers of education, like Harvard, you know, or Berkeley. Well, not like Berkeley. There are a bunch of fruitcakes out there, but subtract the fruitcakes. It's like a, Ber you know, a center of learning, okay? Center of learning. <laughs> huh? Yeah, Princeton, Yale, Harvard. You know, these are major universities. And so Apollos was a highly educated person. But he knew up to the Gospel of John. And what did Priscilla and Aquila do then? They filled him in with the rest of the information. And he believed. And not only did he believe, but then what did he do? He went out and began preaching. And he went back, we know, from Corinth to the Corinthian church and really worked there. Because Paul said, you know, Apollos watered. You know, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Okay? But this is the ministry of Apollos. Is verse 28 to Apollos? Yes. I can't remember. There's three of them. Uh, I, I, I know it might have been Tarsus. I have to remember. That's a good. Somebody can look that up on the web. Alexandria and Antioch were two big cities, and I think Tarsus was one. Um, major universities. That's where a great library was built. You know, the library at Alexandria and Tarsus and that. I'm thinking it was Tarsus. I, I better look that up just to make sure. Um, let's see. It doesn't say here about it being a... MacArthur doesn't tell me that. It's just an important city, but it was a major university city. Alexandria was. All right. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. What upper regions of what? Greece. No. 
Syria. Yeah, Galatia. Where's Galatia? Uh, it's up north in the northern part of Asia Minor by the Black Sea. So Paul passes through that and he comes down to Ephesus. All right. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we have not so much as heard there is a Holy Spirit. Who are these guys? They're Old Testament saints. He said, and what, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Who are these guys? These are Old Testament believers. Now, if one of them died while he was standing there talking to Paul, what... He would be still in, but would he be part of the church? No. He is a bona fide, redeemed Jew believer under John's ministry. All right? And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, is that all that Paul told them? No. No. I mean, Paul probably no. told them, Jesus who? What did Jesus do? You know, the, the gospel message. And immediately, what did these bona fide believing disciples of John do? Believe. They believe. Because what did John say? I'm a forerunner. There's one coming after me. And so evidently, these were Jews that were baptized under the ministry of John, but then he had gone off to Ephesus, wherever they were, and they had not heard about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. They did not know that yet. And when Paul found them, he presented the gospel to them and said they believed they were baptized. When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Why, why did they get the tongues here? By the way, this is the fourth mention of tongues. When did tongues first show up? Pentecost. Pentecost with the Jews there. When did it secondly show up? That's three. Samaritans. Then it showed up with? And now who did it finally show up with? The Old Testament saints. So what is God trying to get into the mind of the disciples. Everybody's the same. You got the Jews, you got the Samaritan half-breeds, you got the Gentiles, and now you've got the straggling Old Testament saints. When they believe they get the same Holy Spirit, they're part of the same body, all right? God, God wanted them to understand it was equal all the way through. There was no distinctions. Okay? So, 15 years later, mm -hmm. they, they were clueless for 15 years? Well, yeah. I mean, you got to understand those days. They did not have internet. They did not have newspapers. You know, they're up in the northern parts of Galatia somewhere. They had not heard. They had not heard. Where did they, were they baptized with John in near Jerusalem? Yeah. Or in Evidently, they were baptized with John. Okay, and they lived up here in the northern part of Asia Minor, up there in, in the Ephesian area. They had never heard the gospel. They did not know. Did Paul minister in Ephesus prior to this? Yes. No, he didn't. He went through there, right? 
but he didn't stay and found a church or anything. Now, you know, he might have hit the synagogue once, but as far as having a continuing ministry, he had not been there yet, in Ephesus at least. Okay? So what does Paul do? Paul sees these 12 straggling Jews, and he preaches to them the gospel. He tells them about Christ, and immediately what do they do? They believe. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. They speak in tongues. They're all part of the same body. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Okay, why? I thought he said he's, I've had it from Jews. Well, he, he Is it, are the gen, and the he's, had it, he's had it with the Jews down in Corinth. All right. But just as, as a matter of, when he, when, he show, when he shows up in a town and there's no one there, it's a brand new town, what's the best place to go to find people who are possibly open? Synagogue. Well, yeah, bar. He, st he still goes to the synagogue, but where, what's the focus of his ministry at this point? It's a Gentile. Yeah, it was a multicultural. I mean, you had the God-fearers there. Yeah, and you had the God-fearers there, and that, that's the best place to go. You know. Yeah, I was taught that it was used in many different things. It was. And there was always a cross. Yeah, I mean, you know, the best place to go is where the people who have some um, attraction to the gospel or attraction to religion are, attraction to God are, that would be the, the, the synagogue. But the focus of his ministry is really, again, turning from Jew to, major, to mainly Gentile. And um, But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This is in Ephesus. All right. So he's there in the synagogue and some of them became hardened. What does it mean they became hardened? They didn't believe. They would not believe. They refused to believe. And all they did was cause trouble. All right. So what did he do? Paul says, okay, fine. I'll leave the synagogue and I'll go over here to the school of Tyrannus and I'll teach there. So he got evicted from the synagogue. <laughs> and this continued for two years so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he was there in Ephesus for two years. Well, no, it, remember, it didn't say he went, he was going to go to Jerusalem, but it, in Acts here it doesn't talk about his visit to Jerusalem between the second and third journey. Okay? He's on his third journey. And, and the bulk, now the bulk of his second journey was spent where? And the bulk of his third journey is spent? Okay. Now, um, look at verse 10. What does that seem to imply? What does verse 10 seem to imply? Yeah. Did Paul stay in Ephesus for two years? No. Probably not. What did he do? There's a base of operations, right? 
And so he would stay in Ephesus, and then he would maybe head over to Laodicea. He would go back to Ephesus, and then he'd go over to Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira. By the way, all those are very close to Ephesus. All right? Yeah, I'd like a circuit rider in those days. Um, but his main base of operations was Ephesus. That's where he spent the bulk of his time. And he did that for two years. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the stick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. That's where the uh, charismatics today get the uh, miracle prayer clause and all that other stuff. All right. The problem is the miracle prayer clause they have today did not come from the Apostle Paul. All right. Um, what's going on here? Well, Paul, God is doing a major ministry here, it's solidifying the message, it's validating the message. People are being healed, so much so that even the sweatbands and the aprons from Paul, they would take them and they'd lay them on somebody and they would heal, the, that person would be healed. God was validating the ministry. This, by the way, this is not normative, because what happened later on in Paul's ministry? It didn't work, right? Here it did, because what is God trying to really establish here? My man with my message, and when established church, and he did, because we know there's at least seven of them, right? Because what happens in Rome in Revelation 2 and 3? You've got seven churches, right? And all seven churches are within a very short distance of Ephesus. In fact, they're on a postal route. Did you know that? There's a postal route, and you follow right around. Okay? Yeah, he's, that's his base of operations. Okay? And uh, so what was he doing during that time? He wasn't just preaching, right? What was he doing? And what else was he doing? Well, to have sweatbands, you got to be working. To be working, he's making tents, right? So he's working at his, at his job, you know, supporting himself. All right. And um, it says here that, uh, oh, by the way, just before I go on, when I'm, I should have mentioned this back on the second journey. Um, Paul's missionary journey served as the backdrop for the writing of many of his books. All right. And um, if you look at the second missionary journey, I should have mentioned this, but, you know, this helps you understand the context of things. Paul, on the second missionary journey, let's review here. Paul goes from Ephesus to where? Second. On second missionary journey. Thessalonica, Thessalonica right? From Thessalonica, where does he go? Berea. Berea. Berea to Athens. Athens to Corinth. Okay. Now, who was with him when he when he got down to Corinth? He got there alone, but who shortly showed up? Timothy and Silas. Okay. Now we know from First and Second Thessalonians that what did Paul do when Timothy showed up in Corinth? Well. Paul, no, he didn't. Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how's things going up there, right? And Timothy comes back, and what does he tell Paul? 
He brings a good report. And how does Paul respond? He writes 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. So that is the first book, excluding Galatians, the first epistle written by Paul, excluding Galatians. Galatians was probably written first by Paul on his after his first missionary journey. No, first he first he writes First Thessalonians, and Timothy takes that letter back. All right, and when Timothy takes that letter back to Thessalonica, what does he find out? Well, there's after after as he takes the first letter back, he finds some people showed up supposedly from Paul, and what were these people saying? You guys missed the rapture. Lord's come back. All confused. All right. In fact, that was really their confusion, and that's why Paul wrote. Well, first of all, the background of First Thessalonians is that Paul writes to encourage the church up there, and one of their major concerns was since Paul left, some believers have died. What happened to them? Did they miss heaven? So Paul writes back to First Thessalonians to explain that, and that's where we have the great rapture passage. They, they you know, they, those who are alive and remain will not proceed. Those who have fallen asleep will all be gathered together. We have that. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful um, book there, but it's written in response to the, to the concerns of. And by the way, you gotta you gotta understand the Thessalonian church is weeks old. You know, this is not a church that's this is a brand new baby church. And they're suffering persecution, too. I mean, that's the, you know, and they're trying to, you know, wait a minute. You know, what's this deal with persecution? And, and so Paul writes this letter back to encourage them. And then he finds not only when he writes this letter back, he finds that some people have even showed up and told them, you missed the rapture. You've missed it. It's gone. So then he writes Second Thessalonians to straighten that out. And so First and Second Thessalonians are written about six months apart. And they're written from Corinth back to Thessalonica to encourage the believers in Thessalonica. <laughs> this is not on the test, but but what what, you, what when you're studying the Bible, for example, how can you understand First Thessalonians if you don't know why Paul wrote it? Mm-hmm. And, and what's going on? You know, what's he trying to? Because it's all written within a context. See, and the same thing with Second Thessalonians. Why did Paul write that? Well, he says why Paul wrote it. He says some people showed up as supposedly from me with even a letter that was supposedly written by me, telling you that you missed the rapture. You're in the day of the Lord. Now, by the way, this is an aside, just so you understand. There's big arguments about the timing of the rapture, right? Okay, is it pre, post, mid, ah? Partial, pre-wrath. When is it? When's Christ coming back? All right. Well, let's let me let me let me just help you solve that a little bit. If you understand why Paul wrote First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, which one of the rapture models explains the reasoning for him writing those two books? Pre, post, mid, pre-wrath, pre. That's the only one that fits. If it was a post, if Christ was going to come back at the end of the tribulation and we were going to go through this great time of testing, what would Paul have said? You might have, you know, we might have just buck up, you know, got to, got to, you know, 
Got to go through it. Buck up. He didn't write that, did he? He said, we're not appointed for the night. We're, de- we're children of the day, not children of the night. We're not of those that that day should overtake us. I've already told you this. You know, so the, the whole thing there, you know, the whole rapture question, all that, it's all solved by understanding why did Paul write the book? When did he write the book? What was the purpose for writing it? And that helps you understand it. Is there any other outside of Thessalonians in the Bible the rapture, the rapture is one of those doctrines that I, if I was the Holy Spirit, which I'm not, I would have put a chapter in explaining it, and that would have solved all the problems. All right, but He didn't. God didn't for, and He had reasons for it, right? Yeah, He had reasons for it. But yeah, but when you look at the New Testament, all right. And you take the the different rapture positions. I believe the one that best explains all the verses, right? Because as if you're going to piece it together, what do you got to do? You got to make it all fit, right? The position that best explains all the evidence is the pre-tribulational position. For multitudinous reasons. If you understand that, you understand First and Second Thessalonians. Because Paul's trying to deal with the confusion of a people that thought they were in the day of the Lord. Now, if we were supposed to go through the day of the Lord, how would have Paul handled that? A lot different than encouraging them, no, you're not in the day of the Lord because I told you that a falling away should come and the man of sin needs to be revealed and you're not in the day of the Lord. I, I explained that to you. You're not You're not there. No, Jesus no, but the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and, and Paul taught them that. Um, also, when you look at the New Testament, you don't see any teachings about how to survive this coming day of the Lord, right? Is there anything in the Bible that tells us how to suffer persecution under the Antichrist and how to deal with that? And No, it's not there. Um, and we're to look for Christ coming as a thief in the night, right? Right. Now, how can he come as a thief in the night if we know the date of the start of the tribulation and we start counting down seven years? Yeah, but it wouldn't be a surprise to the church. Christ said, you don't know the day or the hour that I come. I understand that. But if the post-tribulational view is correct, I can date the coming of the day of the Lord, of the coming of the Lord, because I know when the tribulation starts, I can start counting down the days. All right? He says you don't know that. He wants the church to be alert. And why should the church be alert? The church should be alert because there is a snatching away before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. All right. But if you believe in a post-tribulational rapture, you've got to you've got to explain all those scriptures away somehow. How is it that? I don't know the day or the hour, but yet it tells me from the time of the signing of the peace treaty with Israel to the coming of Christ are seven years. I can get out a calendar and figure it out when he's going to show up. Well, Daniel had to, had to you know. So, does the chronological Bible, does it go like part of the and then? I think it might might do that. Tries to put in chronological order. Um, 
but but having said all that, just understand that First and Second Thessalonians were written during Paul's second missionary journey, and therefore they were written right around AD 50, 51, somewhere around in there. Okay, and they're written back to encourage a a a baby church, a baby church, who are struggling with confusion about certain issues, particularly about the day of the Lord and about the coming of Christ and what happened to the people that died. You know, did they miss it or what's going to happen to them? And they were confused. They they didn't they don't ha- they didn't have the scripture like we had it. And so Paul writes back to encourage them. But Paul is also encouraged by the fact of their faithfulness. You know, he says this, you know, your testimony is sounded out throughout all the world. He even says that in First Thessalonians. You know, so they were they were a faithful church. Okay? Now that's Paul's second mission. So Paul's second missionary journey is the backdrop for first and second Thessalonians. Okay? Paul's third missionary journey is the backdrop for Romans and first and second Corinthians. Okay, that's the backdrop for the, that those three books. All right, Galatians was probably written shortly after his first, most likely. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all written after Paul's going to Rome. In fact, they were written from Rome during his imprisonment after the Book of Acts. Philemon. First and Corinthians. Actually, there's first, second, third, and fourth Corinthians, but we only have the second and fourth books. You'll find that out in the next class. There are actually four letters at least. Paul wrote at least four letters back to Corinth. We have number two and number four as part of our scripture, but there were two others that were written. And we'll, we'll, we'll sort through that. They're not scripture. He wrote them. He In 1 Corinthians, he talks about a letter that he had written. Pardon? I think he was just writing, doing a casual writing. No, he, he, Paul probably wrote a lot of book, letters in that that we don't have a scripture. Okay? Not everything Paul wrote was scripture. But these were. These were. These are no, there's no doubt about it. This is it. And we're not missing anything. Yeah, we're not missing anything, all right? Don't worry about, oh, we're missing, no, we're not missing any scripture, all right? Yeah, well, we're not. We're not missing any scripture, all right? Now, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written from Rome, the Paul's prison epistles. Yeah, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all right? And then, of course, Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus were written at, after those. All right? After the book of Acts. So, seven of Paul's epistles are written after the book of Acts, basically. After the book of Acts ends. But, during his first missionary, or second missionary journey, we know he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And during his third, he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. Okay, and I think all three of those books were written from Ephesus. All right. If I remember, I want 
trying to think Romans. I think Romans. He wrote a good chunk of it. Um, Romans. Let's see here. No, excuse me. Romans was written from Corinth. I'm, I take it back. Romans was written from Corinth during his third journey, um, probably A.D. 56, somewhere around in there. And uh, First and Second Corinthians were written from, I think, Ephesus, back to Corinth. All right. So that's just a sort of little side detour. I wanted to mention that because, you know, Paul's second missionary journey really serves as the backdrop for the first and second, the, the, really the earliest two epistles he wrote, first and second Thessalonians, to a church in Thessalonica. Okay. Um, he might have wrote wrote, wrote a, a, a letter to Berea. He might have written one to Corinth or to Athens. We don't have those churches. We don't have those letters. If they were written, we don't have them. Okay. We do know he wrote one to Laodicea, which may be our book of Ephesians, um, but we don't know that for certain. Now, Thessalonians was written before Galatians? No. Galatians was we don't know when Galatians was written. I mean, you can't prove it, but the preponderance of evidence would suggest from the thematic content, it really deals with what? Law and grace and the whole issue of Judaizers and all the you know, the mixing of law and grace, and when would that have been the hot topic? About the time of the Jerusalem Council. When was that? Well, that was shortly after the first missionary journey, and most likely that was written, Galatians was written back to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, who were dealing with these Judaizers that were coming in and confusing everyone. Well, then that question on the test was false. Which question was that? You don't really know. The preponderance of evidence would suggest that Galatians was the first. Boy, I'll tell you, man, alive. Sheesh. Oh, man, I'll tell you. But um, what you see here, so, so that's just a side detour, okay? So let's come back. We'll just spend a few more minutes here, and then we'll. We'll leave here. Um, and it says evil spirits went out from them. So, so not only are people being healed, but they're being exercised. These demons are leaving them when they're being touched by these aprons and hand, uh, handkerchiefs of Paul. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the name of by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Who are these guys? Well, they were roaming exorcists. Now, what was a what was this? They were vagabonds. Yeah, they were vagabonds, but but were, these were the witch doctors of the day, right? All right, you got to understand the mentality of people back then. They didn't have modern medicine and all that kind of stuff. So when somebody was sick, what was the what did they think? Well, it was a demon or an evil spirit or something like that. Now, are, do people think like that today? Yes. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. yes. Um, the Hunters. I don't know if you heard their name. Um, I forget their first names. The Hunters. They, uh, they have a ministry, um, spiritual boot camp ministry. And uh, their basic thesis is whenever you hear like a, you know, the word cold, flu, sniffles, you're talking about demons. Demons cause all diseases. And so what you need to do is you need to claim power over the de demon of the sniffle. 
or the demon of the cold or the demon of flu. Um, I even got an email from a guy saying he's identified one of the major demons in control of the United States called Tobac, who's behind people smoking. <laughs> I'm not making that up. I have the email at home. I can pull it out. Um, but, but, yeah, Tobac. Um, but today we have, we have people who actually believe that all disease is caused by a demon. And you got to exercise the demon and you're delivered from the disease. There are people that say every sin you do, it's really not you. You're not really the one who's lusting. It's a demon of lust in you. And if you can exercise the demon, you're good, you know. It's the demon who causes it. Um, so all I need to do is write down all of my demons and go somewhere. I'm sorry. I didn't hear. Josephus wrote about that. You believe in Josephus. Well, Josephus is a historian. Well, anyway, he wrote in the ANT, the Antiquities. B one one one, chapter two five, that B were demons. Here's the account. Yeah. Now, now let's understand. When I say, when I say that there are some people that believe that every disease is a demon, are there diseases that are caused by demons? Yes, there are. Is every disease caused by a demon? No, it is not. But in those days, the preponderance of thought was anybody who was sick was a, was demon-possessed. There was a demon or some evil spirit causing their disease. And so what you had were people that would go around like these faith healers and heal people, exercise demons. That's how they made their living. They would exercise demons from people. And in some cases, there were real demons. I mean, this was a time when people were literally demon-possessed. But the problem is, in our own fallenness, we don't know what is caused by a demon and what isn't. We can't tell the difference, right? Um, evidently, there are people that were that Christ cast demons well, out of. Paul, in in those days, there were they were capable of doing that. I'm saying. It's the working. It's the working of the spirit. But today, you know, if I walk into a hospital and somebody's sick, I can't say, "Well, their, their problem is they've got a demon in them." I don't know that. There's no way for me to discern that. Yeah, you, you're not going to figure that out, you know. But but back in those days, you know, there there were true demon possession. I mean, the Bible clearly says that. But not every disease is caused by a demon. Okay. But these guys here, what you had is you had itinerant exorcists that would go around and for a fee, you know, they would exercise the demons from you. All right, that's how they made their living. Pardon? Did they actually do it? Um, what do you think? Do you think they really were able to do it? Probably not. They didn't do it from the Lord. No, they didn't. They didn't. Well, remember that lady was bent double that had the demon in her. Um, the other one said uh, whose child had epilepsy. You know, the demon sometimes throws him into the fire and whatever. Um, but he didn't associate every healing with life. No, he did not. Satan can cause disease. How do you know that? Well, Job. You know, where did Job's boils come from? Satan touched him. You know, what did Satan? I don't know what Satan did, but he was able to give him a disease. And is able to afflict that woman bent double. So Satan can, but not every disease is of Satan. Like the, he said that the kid that was healed, he was blind, he was born. 
Yeah, it wasn't a demonic presence that caused that. Okay. But what you had is these guys were itinerant exorcists. And they went around doing this. And they found that Paul had some neat trick. In their mind, Paul had a neat trick. What was the neat trick? Well, this name of Jesus thing seems to really have some magic here. So like Abracadabra, Wizzo, Kazam or whatever. So they said, well, let's try this one out. So the, there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests who did so. They were itinerant exorcists. And uh, they got a guy that was demon-possessed and said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus, come out, whom Paul preaches. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you guys? And it said, the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This guy beat up all seven of them. They figured they were going to try this name of Jesus thing, and they found out it backfired on them big time. You know, you say God doesn't have a sense of humor. Come on, you know. The, the, evil, the, guy, in the, the guy with the evil spirit beat them up and, and tore their clothes off, and they ran out of the house naked. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And the fear fell on them all. The name of Jesus was magnified. Jesus is not, Jesus, and here, here's, you know, this goes back to you know, our discussion a couple weeks ago about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not a magic spell. It is something to be revered because it, it signifies all that he is. And these guys who want to go around and start tossing the name of Jesus around, you know, the sons of Sceva tried that, and they found out it didn't work. He was a chief priest, this guy. But, and then we have the account here of how this caused a major revival. And we'll pick up the revival and riot next week. But we are catching up. We will get through the book by the end of class. Now, not next week, because we, that's Thanksgiving, but the week after. We got three weeks of class left, I think it is. And, um, right? So we got three weeks left. Turn your tests in before you leave. Um, any questions or comments here? All right. That what? No, no. I, I, and you know what? If I do put a, I'm going to, I might give you a test to, I might give you a map hand out a map and you identify some major cities on it but I'll give you the map ahead of time yeah you know like you should basically you know quite honestly you should be able to point out where Athens is on a map you know yeah. so all right so let's close in prayer father thanks so much for this time and for being here and thanks for your your teaching us and pray that we will remember what we've been taught in Christ's name Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.